God, I'm thankful for um, what we have in store this morning. I'm thankful for this month, a time to regroup and regather, um, to consider again what it means to be the church. We're thankful, Lord. We entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn that back on. Thank you all. We're in, uh, let, let me take care of kind of housekeeping for the sermon. If you'd like to kind of know where we're going, scripture-wise, I'm going to give you six verses, and then I'm going to kind of share with you a little bit of introduction. Acts 2, Genesis 32, hear papers rustling and pens scrawling, that's good, jot these down, jot these down. Acts 2, Genesis 32, Deuteronomy 4, Ephesians 1, John 3, and 2 Corinthians 4. This morning we're continuing a series of sermons asking and answering the question, what is the church? Um, I'll tell you right now, I don't know that I've ever done anything harder. I'm not talking preaching. I'm talking being the church. I don't know if there's anything more difficult than being part of each other's lives in meaningful ways. I think at times it would be a whole lot easier for us to just insulate ourselves from each other and to just show up on Sunday mornings because then we don't hurt each other's feelings. We can just smile. We can glad hand. We can get our church on and we can go about our business. Does anybody else ever have that thought, man, that would really be appealing? I would love that at times, but you know what? It might be easier, but it's not better. This month is a regrouping for us. We don't need regrouping necessarily. Maybe we did. In 2009, we asked and answered this question for the first time, what is the church? And then now in 2014, we're spending the month of November coming back to it. Because if you're like me, we're likely going to gravitate toward and migrate toward the path of least resistance. And we may find ourselves just in this place of just showing up, or maybe even not. Maybe we just move virtual and just pull it up online. Or maybe even not that at all, because it's just easier. Because frankly, things, you know, widgets are easy. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for our engineers that are doing tasks that are, I know there's a whole lot more to engineer work than just doing some sort of plan, because you have to work with teams. But you know enough working out there as engineers to know that people are challenging. I was about to say difficult, but I was trying to be gracious. People are difficult. Let's just be honest. And I'm chief of those. Christy's married to one of those. Man, when we really want to be part of each other's lives in a meaningful way, as what it looks like, this Bible is saying church is, you're going to be disappointed You're going to find yourself frustrated. You're going to find yourself out of gas at times. You're going to find yourself sometimes maybe on a Sunday morning gathering going, I don't even want to see this person, much less break bread with them and share the supper with them. And guess what? When you step off into that, when you find yourself in that place, instead of bailing on it, what you may find as you press through it is you may find a sweeter, deeper meaning to your church experience than you ever thought you would because grace is applied in ways that had never been before grace is needed in ways that you may have never really realized church done biblically is really hard it's really inefficient but it's really good i need this month to regroup i need this month to revisit to be affirmed to press on in the inefficient and challenging work of being the people of God. And I think we need this as a church family. These last few weeks, we've built, started building a definition of church. Church is, first of all, a people. It's not an activity, although there are things that the church does. The church is not another activity in your schedule book. The church is an identity, very different approach when you start to see yourself as the people of God. Activities will flow out of that good worship-fueled activities. Secondly, we considered that the church is an accountable people. We are, in fact, our brother's keeper. It's the world that says we're not. It's Cain that said, what am I, my brother's keeper? We are about the work of keeping each other, not as meddlers, but because we care about the beauty of the bride when Christ comes back. We don't want her to be homely. 
That's the motive behind being involved in each other's lives for the beauty of the bride. And third, this last week, we considered that the church is an accountable people who are led and leadable as image bearers of God. If anything, as image bearers of God. God has shown us in the Trinity. We considered this last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to this. It may sound kind of foreign if you weren't here last week. That the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity are equal in being, all fully God, all three persons, fully God, yet there is functional subordination and functional hierarchy within the Trinity. And the church reflects the same. The home reflects the same as a wife submits to her husband who's supposed to be the head of the home as Christ is the head of the church. The husband doesn't have more value than the wife. He has a different role. And the church has a similar setup. Today we're going to consider two things. Really, really four, but in two chunks. The church is taught and teachable, and the church is loved and loving. This is the, the, uh, the coalescence, I don't know if that's a word that I want to use, the combination of four sermons. So if you're here this morning like, oh man, I'm not sure I'm ready to sit that long. Trust me, it's going to be a whole lot shorter than you would think. For four sermons from 2009 that have sort of been, been like, she's very thin compared to how she was in 2009. She's very lean. I promise you this is going to be doable. The first part of the message on taught and teachable is going to be somewhat brief because I want to spend most of our time on loved and loving. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to develop something for you, this concept of God as teacher and preacher. It may be something you've never thought about. You may have thought about him as creator, as sovereign being, But you may have never considered God as teacher and preacher. Listen to this passage in Psalm chapter 19, or Psalm number 19. And you stay over there in Acts chapter 2. We're coming there in a minute. I'm just going to share a passage from Psalm 19 as you're turning there. The heavens declare the glory of God. Listen to these words like declare. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God has been preaching through creation since the opening lines of the sermon, Let There Be Light. And we're surrounded by this wonderful message of the glory of God from day to day, from the cardinals that come in at certain times of the year. These same cardinals that have a scar that, like, you're back to the sunrise or sunset that's totally different than it was the day before. To the waves crashing on every shore, on every coastland that are relentless. And they're relentless because they're doing something. They're preaching about the glory of God over and over, day in, day out. Why so many stars? He could have just placed a couple up there. He didn't have to place any. Why so many stars? Because they have a job to do. They're preaching the glory of God. What a wonderful message he's been preaching, this relentless message he's been preaching since the beginning of the world of creation. That if we would but pay attention and notice, it surrounds us, it yells at us. But that's not all he's done. Thankfully, he's not just preached the message through creation, or we might find ourselves worshiping the stars or the moon or the cardinal. Thankfully, he's done more than that. He's given us specific words through messengers, prophets, people like Moses delivering the law. A law that's so fine that Deuteronomy 4 says the neighbors were jealous of the kind of God that would give a people that kind of law. People like Moses delivering messages, sermons from a preaching God, from prophets who are weeping, warning, proclaiming, and foretelling men like Jeremiah, Elijah, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Joel, and even reluctant prophets like Jonah. Preaching through New Testament prophets, men like John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance and faith, preaching God's message as God is preacher, God is teacher. And then God the Son shows up. And have you ever heard the saying, 
preach the gospel and if at times use words if necessary, that is the worst, lamest sentence you can ever think. What if Jesus had done that and just shown up and just been nice but never spoken, never preached and exposed who he was and what he was doing. But he did everywhere he went in the wilderness, from boats, from hillsides, beside fig trees, in upper rooms, in gardens, by wells, as they walked on roads to Bethany or the Mount of Olives, or after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Thankfully, he spoke and he conveyed literally from God's mouth, God's message, because God is preacher, God is teacher. And then the church is born through preaching that we're going to look at here in a second. And it's sustained and it continues to be born. New churches are born through the preaching of his word, through men like Paul and men like Peter. And then on to people that they disciple, like Timothy, the message is preached and carried because God is raising up messengers and preachers to proclaim and exalt and declare with fire the glory of the Lord through the exposition of his word. I'm thankful that the heavens declare the glory of God, but I need more than the sunrise. I need to know who he is, and we've got that through the teaching and preaching of his word. How important is preaching and teaching to the life of the church? Why would we consider part of the church series? Acts chapter 2 is a great reference for us. Let's look there. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. I would like to just break this down a few verses at a time and look at what takes place over the course of a good portion of this chapter. We're not going to read every verse in the chapter, but just some excerpts. Beginning in verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Here we see a preacher standing. It bothers me at times that I'm sitting on this. If you know, I don't notice I don't stay seated on this typically over the course of the entire sermon. And I'm about ready to stand up, but I'm trying to control myself right now. Because he's standing with lifted up voice. Why do preachers lift their voices and exult as they're exposing something? Because that's what preaching is. That's what Peter did at Pentecost. Addressing the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And all that were in earshot. And what's he sharing with them? He's not sharing with them how crummy his life was before Jesus called him away from that boat. He's not sharing with them how hard it was to try and find fish on the Sea of Galilee. He's not sharing with them how mean his parents were and how he's just learned to cope with all those things since Jesus showed up. He's taking them to God's word. Notice what takes place next. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's exposing scripture. Man, I'm thankful to see that in preaching, in New Testament preaching. He's exposing God's word. Look at Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. He's saying, you're seeing that today. He's taking God's word and scripture, and he's connecting it to their context and to their moment. He's saying, you're living in the fulfillment of this right now. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Man, look down at verse 22. Men of Israel, he addresses them again. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's a fearless preacher if that. This is seven weeks after his Lord was crucified. Seven weeks later, in the same town, and the chicken of Passover is now the bold preacher of Pentecost. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here we see him throughout the rest of this passage pointing to Jesus and preaching the resurrection. Because that's what biblical preaching is. Exposing scripture, exposing Christ, preaching the resurrection. Look all the way down at verse 37. 
More, and there's lots of other scripture exposed in there from David. And then he gets down to verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Here you see affect in the preaching of his word. It affects people. Things are going to take place in God's people, in their hearts. They heard this. They were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful picture of his message is not void of a call to repentance. If you hear a preacher that's not preaching repentance ever, then you have to wonder, is he preaching God's word? Is he preaching what the church needs to hear? And here it is, a message of repentance. And then there's a message of assurance here in the next verse. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Repentance and assurance. And then an encouragement to to me in the next verse. And with many other words he bore witness. There's no sign that Peter is working on brevity, that his goal in preaching is to be brief. There's no goal apparently for a 30-minute worship service. Man, he's here to expose God's word and call people to repentance. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, standing with lifted voice, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. Look at the next verse. And they, this newborn church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers because that's what the church does. That's who the church is, born through the preaching of his word, sustained through the preaching of his word. Here they are, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because God is preacher and the church is born through preaching and the exposition of the word and the people of God are to be taught then and teachable. We need it. We don't ever not need it. Double negative for emphasis. There's never a day or a week where we don't need the preaching, teaching of his word. The church was born through it, and the church is sustained through it. See, we're already part two of the sermon. I told you. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Loved and loving. Turn to Genesis chapter 32. Man, I wrestled with this second part of the sermon. I can't even tell you how much I wrestled with it because there was so much I want to share. Uh, With it being a holiday this week, I'm not sure how much I'll be able to share through email. There may just be a little series at some point, a little uh, love series on how God has loved us that we might work through. But I want to share a few things, a few essentials, three things that I want you to see how God loves us. First, he loves us uninfluenced and undeserved, uninfluenced and undeserved. He loves us surgically, and he loves us specifically. Let's look first at uninfluenced and undeserved. Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is our speaker here in in chapter 32, verse 9. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. If you know Jacob's story, you know how unworthy he in fact is. If you don't know Jacob's story, this is a great moment for you to dedicate yourself to beginning to read through God's word every day over the course of 2015. McShane's Bible reading guide, just something simple like that, can acquaint you with stories to where I can reference it and you go straight to the back story here. This guy is saying, I am unworthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown me. If you know his story, you know that's true because you know he was a deceiver. He deceived his father. He deceived his brother. 
And here he is begging for his life. That's the context here. Where he's begging for his life. Where he knows he's about to see Esau again. For the first time since he left home. Esau is approaching his camp. He thinks he's about to die. This picture here of Jacob is a picture of us. He's undeserving of God's love. And God's love is uninfluenced by the kind of man that he is. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love. If you know his story, you know that's true. And Jacob is not an isolated story. It was true of the nation of Israel as well. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. Israel, it was not because it was something impressive about you that he set his love on you. Jacob, it was not because it was something impressive about you that God set his love on you and was going to fulfill his promise through you instead of Esau. It was not because you were more numbered than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He set his love on them like he set his love on Jacob. Man, what a wonderful church is in store. What wonderful spirit is in store for a church that grabs the reality that your, his love for you is uninfluenced and undeserved. Listen to what Paul reminds Timothy of in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What a wonderful church who grabs the reality and appropriates, apprehends the reality that you are loved undeservedly and uninfluenced. Jacob knew it. Do you? Jacob knew it. Do you? We sang it this morning. Did, you, did, it, did it bother you or did you love it when you are singing the words, such a worm as I? Did you look at that and say, man, I don't like that about our worship songs? Or did you go, yes, I'm a worm. I'm deserved of his love. Yes, I'm a Jacob. Yes, I'm a deceiver at heart. Yes, I'm selfish and in most things just for myself. Even the good things, there's probably some sort of ulterior motive that's really just going to make me feel better about myself. Man, God's love for me, from A.W. Pink, here's a quote. God's love for me and for each of his own was entirely unmoved by anything in us. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me. Sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. Man, I realize, I, as Crosspoint is re-preaching this sort of message as it comes up over the years, it makes, don't, don't think I don't realize that a lot of people don't like to hear that. I want to show up to church and feel better about myself. I know, how, I know what you're made of. I know what I'm made of. I want to show up to church and feel better about myself, but realize that preaching and exposition of the word is going to take you to a place where you don't feel necessarily better about yourself. You feel better about God. You feel more scandalized that a God would love you in spite of who you are. This word that is so exposing and so powerful, in fact, it exposes you and your motives to your very marrow Man, it also exposes this magnificent, crazy, scandalous love of God that he would set his love on the likes of us. What a humble, loving, gentle church that makes of folks if they apprehend that. What a humble, approachable people we would be. How defensive would we be if we really, or wouldn't we be, if we really 
apprehend this. We're loved, influenced, and undeserved. That's the first thing. Second, we're loved surgically. I grew up fishing with my dad, and we fished in a lot of these. Um, we didn't have tanks, really, in Louisiana. Um, we had just little bayous and offshoots of one slough or another. I grew up in Bobeth Swamp, in a place where you could just walk out your back door and go find some place to fish. And One of my favorite baits to use was something called a hula popper. And I know there's some fisher, fishermen in here that know a hula popper. It's a, it's a bait that sits on the top of the water. And it has this big mouth that looks like a Pac-Man. Okay, big old mouth opened up. Has a skirt hanging off the back. Like a little rubber skirt to attract the fish. And you just pull that thing across the, the top of the lake and you just pop it. And it makes this whoosh. And any fish within 10 feet, maybe, is at least alerted about it. And if you catch them at the right time, they get mad and they destroy that joker. And that's how you catch them. Makes them mad. I was thinking about how a lot of times people view God's work in the gospel. And I want you to realize that at least our Bibles tell us that God's love for the world and his gospel message through these teachers and preachers, through his word, that it's not a worldwide fishing trip where he throws a hula popper into the world seeing who will take the bait. Seeing who will jump. Mm, man, that, that hula popper looks great. Or maybe makes me mad. Remember point one in that he's, his love for us is uninfluenced and undeserved. If you think that you're the fish that goes after the hula popper, then there's something in you that was smart enough to go after this bait. His love for us is surgical though. I want to show you that his love for us deals with trajectory. It's not a worldwide fishing trip just to see who bites. His love is very surgical and his special love for us. Look, to, look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. A surgical love. It's not a fishing trip. This point about love deals with trajectory. What is the direction of his love? The last thing we're going to deal with is how does he love us? This deals with what is the direction of his love. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other. Moses is preparing the nation of Israel to cross over the Jordan on into the promised land and begin the conquest. He's on Mount Nebo, looking over into the promised land, writing the book of Deuteronomy. And it's sort of like, I'm going to pair you guys. We've just spent 40 years in the wilderness. Before that, you saw the mighty acts of judgment and the plague. You saw the might and the power of God delivering his people from, from Egypt through the Exodus. And now he's preparing his people to go across. And listen to what he's preparing them with. Ask all over the earth, ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Listen to what he says. To these people, to the nation of Israel. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard? A very specific love on you, Israel. Did any people anywhere ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror? All of which the Lord, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes. You hear the trajectory? Do you see the trajectory of his love? Is there any nation in all the world that's ever even heard of the kind of love that he has set on and directed toward and aimed at Israel? An unlikely, undeserving people. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice. That he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, 
driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart, Israel, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other I'm emphasizing all of those yous because I want you to see that his love is very, very surgical on Israel. And that's the point that's being made here. Man, has anybody else ever seen anything like this? Has anybody else ever even experienced what you have experienced? You, Israel, have experienced a special and surgical love on a certain people. Undeserved and uninfluenced love. I want you to understand that that's not just an Old Testament reality. I want you to see, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see that this is a New Testament reality. This is a church reality as well. It's funny, in the 11 years that we've been the church here in Greenville, or been Crosspoint Fellowship in Greenville, this is one of the things that has been a snag, a perpetual snag for people when we start to talk about God's specific love on a people. On the church. There's no problem that anybody's ever had with God setting his specific love on Israel among all the other nations. I mean, right? Some of us been around long enough to know, man. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, that, but that's Old Testament. Without saying it, we're saying, well, God's different now. Yet our Bibles are saying that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why in the world would he operate differently then than he does now? Where he sets a surgical Love on the church. Listen to this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 3. Really start to pay attention beginning in verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And he can do that because he's God. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The church didn't just happen from a lame, ineffectual, sappy love for the world. God loves the world absolutely, but he loves the church specifically. And it's not a hula popper kind of love, or he's casting it out there just to see who takes the bait. It is a very surgical love on the church where he grabs people, drags, if you want to use the language of John chapter 6, from every tribe and every nation and every color and every age and every people group, and he is grabbing and gathering the people called the church. His love created a people in the Old Testament, and his love is creating a people right now. His love was set on a people, and it's set on a people and tribes and tongues in every age and every class now, and it's called the church. We are loved surgically, a bunch of Jacobs. In case anybody ever gets the notion that you must be special if God set his love on you, his surgical love on you, that we must be implying that there's something special about us. Go back to point one. Undeserved, uninfluenced. To be really frank, we're a bunch of Jacobs, a bunch of deceivers. The fact that he would set his love on anyone is a scandal. <laughs> a marvelous scandal. The third thing, we are loved specifically. Turn to John chapter 3. This will be a very familiar passage. It may be the most familiar passage in our Bibles, but may be um, a new perspective for you in this passage. We are loved uninfluenced, undeserved. We are loved surgically, and we are loved specifically. If you somehow get a new job, something you've been praying for, if you somehow are able to talk that beautiful lady into, young lady into marrying you, you know, and you're like, man, God really loves me because of what he's done for me. That's absolutely love. I, I think you should appreciate that that's God's love. But what I want to address in these next few minutes is in regards to the church, that he has a specific kind of love for the church. 
and a specific way of loving the church and, frankly, the world. And it's in a very familiar passage here in John chapter 3, verse 16. This passage deals with how he loves the world. This passage, my whole life, in fact, I think it may have been the first passage I ever learned when I was a little kid. My dad enticed me to learn, or enticed, I don't know if that's a word, he, he lured me, or he talked me into, he hired me. He hired me to learn scripture by paying me with peanut M&M's. Some of y'all know I was no weight kids. I learned lots of scripture, you know, I was all that, like the whole Bible, you know, if I get peanut M&M's, that's a good thing. And I think I got a bag of peanut M&M's for John chapter, or John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. My whole life I've been growing up. You might view this passage this way right now. God so loved the world. So as in a volume. He just has like this such big love for the world. It's so big. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let me show you a different way of reading this passage. Let me, I guess most of us in here have the ESV. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If you have the ESV, look down at the bottom of the page. It's note number 10 in my ESV. I have sort of a newer version of the ESV, a newer copy. I think the older versions might be note number 6 or something like that. Seem like what I recall. My verse or little note number 10 says, For this is how God loved the world. For this is how God loved the world. The Holman Christian Standard is the Bible that I first, that first acquainted me with what's really going on here. For God loved the world in this way, is what the Holman Christian Standard says. For God loved the world specifically in this way that he sent his only begotten son. When rain falls on a drought, is that God's love? Yes, sir. When you get a job or you get well, is that God's love? Absolutely. But if we want to talk about specific, let's be really specific about how God loves the world. He loves the world in the person and work and the preaching and the exposition of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything else is gravy. You get rain on your crops, gravy. You get healed, gravy. You get that job, Icing, beautiful. But the cake is Jesus. Man, that's how he's loved the world. That's how he's loved the church. He's given us. Jesus, he loved us in this way with the person and the work of Jesus. I want you to see that the church is to have this Christ-centric love for Jesus because that's how he's loved us with Christ. Man, we spend so much time in our prayer times, which we should, lifting up the sick or the wayward or the struggling or these different situations that we're all in the middle of. But some of our prayer times should be consumed with the reality that we have everything in Christ already. Everything else is gravy. If I never have another healthy day, Jesus has got to be enough because he is. If I never have another bite of food, if I never have another paycheck, he's enough for joy. Man, the church is to be fueled by that Christ-centric reality that he is our all in all. God loved the world in this way, just like he loved the world when it was wicked and he sent or he spoke to Noah and said, Noah, build an ark. He loved the world surgically and specifically in the person and the work of Noah. And he's done the same thing for us with something so much better than a boat. Instead, it's a cross. And in a person, the work of Jesus Christ is how he's loved the world. If you have love for others and love for people, man, you got to love them with Jesus. Because that's how he's loved us. Let me show you one verse that puts all three of these together. You can listen to it. You can jot it down. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I want to show you how all three of these love things work together. Love uninfluenced and undeserved. Love that's surgical and love that's specific. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God shows his love for us. Surgical. Okay? God shows his love for us. We are loved surgically. In that while we were still sinners, love undeserving and uninfluenced. While we were still sinners... 
Christ died for us. Specific love. In one verse, just a chapter later, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. We're undeserving of his love. But the free gift of God, love uninfluenced, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Specific love. Man, the church is to be fueled by this total satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to land the plane this morning with something that might be totally new for you. It's going to connect taught and teachable and loved and loving with what might be, you might think about it later, it's like, man, that's so obvious, but why did I never think of that? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It's where we're going to end as we go into our supper. I'm going to take a few minutes, just me mentioning supper. I don't want anybody to start tuning out because, in fact, I want you to know that I made for, accounted for a pretty brief sermon, relative usual, so that I wouldn't be out of listening account, so the listening account wouldn't be empty by the time you got to this point right now. Okay? So it's by design that it's been somewhat brief because I want you to have a lot of listening left in your, not, you don't even need a volume, just potent listening left in your account. Creation theology is going to be a different approach to understanding taught and teachable, loved and loving. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, what I want you to see is taking place there in that first chapter of Genesis in the creation account that's so familiar to us is that God is speaking order and life into chaos. He's speaking order and life into a place that is formless and void. What I want you to understand is that's what God's word does always. Now look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let there be light, let, the, let light shine out of darkness. That's another way of putting it. That, the passage we just read has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is taking the Corinthian church to the place of realizing that creation theology helps them understand their own salvation. As God spoke into chaos at the beginning of the age, and a place that's formless and void, he spoke into the Corinthian church, a chaotic people that were experiencing darkness apart from God. God speaks into their lives, and man, order happens. Life happens. Structure happens. Because that's what God, God's word does. Here's where I want you to see this taught, teachable, loved, and loving all coming together. I want you to see that we are loved by God's spoken word. Because it works. It is a working word. It is an effective word. And it's spoken by a God that frankly didn't even need us. Our Bibles tell us that he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. The Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit didn't somehow need us to show up so that he could be loving. He was already loving, loving the other persons of the Trinity. He didn't somehow need us because he needed, or create us because he needed companionship. But love compelled him to say, let there be light. And let there be man, let there be Adam, let there be Eve, let there be the Corinthian church, let there be cross point fellowship. Love is what compelled that. He didn't need us, but he invited us into relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with his spoken word. Because that's what his word does it brings order out of chaos, it brings light and life out of darkness. That's what he's saying is happening with the Corinthian church. He's reminding them of what God did with them. I want to show you briefly what happens when people step away from this context of God's word, this order-bringing, life-bringing 
word. In the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel, specifically Judah at this point, was wordless. They had walked so far, departed so far from God's word and relationship with God, period, that they were in a wordless place. And listen how God describes this through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, actually in verse 22, he says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They're stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise. He puts a little quotation to Mark. In doing evil. But how to do good they know not. Listen to what it says next. I looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void. They had so neglected the word they had come to a place of being uncreated. Darkness. Chaos. I looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold they were quaking to haul the hills They moved to and fro. I looked and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Through wordlessness, Judah had experienced uncreatedness. Now, how is this connected to love and loving? A loving God spoke into our lives as he spoke into the Corinthian church and he's shown light in our lives to bring order and life to a bunch of chaos and darkness. And a church that departs from his word is going to be a church that's moving toward and migrating toward, gravitating toward chaos and darkness. No thank you, not for me. I don't want to be part of a church that steps away from his word and the weekly exposition of his word because that's what his word does in my life. That's what his word does in your life. It brings order. It brings life. It brings light. Without it, you're going to move in the direction of chaos and darkness. Go weeks and months without hearing the preaching of his word and tell me what your life is like. Go weeks without reading his word and tell me what your life is like. Chaos and darkness. Because that's what his word does. It brings order. It brings life. It brings light. Even if you find yourself in a mess. Man, it never ceases to amaze me how circumstances, difficult job environments, difficult relationship environments, difficult marital relationships or whatever might keep people from the preaching of the word. And I'm thinking, how bad do you need that right now? The very thing that's keeping you from the preaching and exposition of his word is the very place you need to bring order, the very place you need to bring life and light. You need it yourself, and you need to be a bearer of it. Man, what a beautiful work his word does in bringing life, in bringing order. So how does taught and teachable, loved and loving come together for us? We love others with the word, with a message Man, is there a place for feeding the poor? Is there a place for helping the needy? Absolutely. But first and foremost, we are word bearers. We are message bearers of what Jesus has done, what God has spoken. And when we do that, man, we're bringing order to chaos. We're bringing light and life to a dark context. Man, we love the world with a message. A spoken message. Don't believe that saying, preach the gospel, you use words if necessary. You've got to speak it. Speak it in your home. Speak it with your wives, your husbands, with your children. Speak this order-bringing, light-bringing, life-bringing word. And you will find that darkness will fade. And you will find this peace that passes understanding, even though you might be in a mess at work even though you might be in a mess in your family relationship, even though you might be in a mess in your marriage, you'll find this undescribable, indescribable peace, a peace that passes understanding because there's order and there's light and there's life as God is speaking into you. Man, I promise you, you'll find darkness and chaos if you step away from it. Love others with his word. The lost... And the found, that's what we love others with. The lost and the found. 
with his love as he created the church. That's all I got this morning about that. I told you we could do it. I told you we could do it. I encourage you to listen. You maybe need to listen to this again or listen to some of these parts that you've missed over the last few weeks. It's part of a conversation that we're having as a church family. And this conversation, I think, uh, builds upon itself. There's some things that we may have referred to, I may have referred to this morning, that were dependent on previous mornings as we gathered. So I encourage you to gather those things up. I'm going to have our Lord's Supper from Luke chapter 22. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. Luke chapter 22. Beginning in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This phrase that I want you to really be conscious of and really aware of as we take supper together is doing this in remembrance of me. As we pass out the elements in these next few minutes, doing this that we do every single week in remembrance of a God that loved us enough to send God the Son to die for us. I need to be reminded of that every single week because I forget. Do this in remembrance of me, as in don't neglect it. Don't marginalize this table as just something that we do every week, that you can take or miss or not. It doesn't affect you. If you miss it, you need it. You need to remember. You need to be reminded how much he loves you. Never assume it. Never marginalize it. Remember it. Remember it. Let's distribute the elements.